Tarot Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is almost, well actually it is, December 6, 2021. The third day of Tevet already, 5782. Hanukkah is over. And so we are into the dark winter nights. However, I have a very exciting guest for you today. Someone who I've known for a long time, Josh Evan Chen. Uh, he's been a tour guide for a really long time. He'll tell us that in a minute. I remember him as a tour guide before I was a tour guide when he used to bring groups to me to talk about like the right wing perspective or like I was the settler uh, who would give them that perspective. So um, known Josh for a long time, really a fabulous tour guide and also not as busy as we would like to be during these Korea days. But what he has done in when we all write our essays, what I did during my Corona-imposed vacation, is um, polish up a book, a manuscript that he had written a few years ago and is now publishing called The 36. So Josh, thank you so much for joining me today on Rejuvenation. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm halfway through the book, so I can't ruin it for everybody by accidentally saying what happens at the end. Um, Really fast paced, very much enjoying it. So tell us a little bit, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write uh, a book set in Israel, obviously, and um, kind of, I don't know, what would you call it, a thriller, mystery? Uh, The genre is definitely, um, definitely a thriller. I would say that well, it's much more complex than that. Uh, so a little bit about myself is that I was born um, back in uh, 71 in Wilmington, North Carolina. My family came to Israel in 78. So I've been here for over 40 years. And for over 25 uh, years, maybe 30 years, I've been working in what's called Israel education, which you know very much about. And that's the combination of, of, of tour guiding, but really using the leisure tourism, I would say the leisure term in- industry as a platform and a framework to educate about topics such as Israel, Zionism, Judaism, uh, faith, religion, politics, many other things, really using it as an educational tool. And this idea came to me almost a decade ago of how do I, how can I basically teach these things using the the platform, the, the tool that we, that you and I both use called the land of Israel and everything that it has, but for people who aren't here. And really, the book just sort of grew inside of me. I can't really say what started it. It's not like I, I, I always knew I'd be writing a book. Um, I didn't. It just sort of grew. And little by little, I'd be out in the field. And these ideas would pop into my mind. And I just it, it just had this yearning to write it down. And so it started uh, growing about uh, eight years ago and took me about a year and a half to write. And then I put it away. Um, it wasn't ready to come out into the world yet. <laughs> gestation period was exactly. not yet complete. Um, and, and Corona allowed me to do that, allowed me to, to pull it off the shelf, dust it off, to edit it, to format it, to really put every, all the ideas together. Um, and that's, that, I would say, is the purpose of the book. Um, um, the book is instead of using leisure tourism uh, for educational purposes, what it's doing is it's using leisure reading uh, to educate um to achieve the same goals mm-hmm. uh, and and that's one of the wonderful things i would say about corona if there's anything wonderful that is we all get thrown tough balls at hard balls at different points of our life and how do we take the lemons and make lemonade so here what i did is is i was like okay people can't come to israel how can i bring israel to them and that that's really what my book uh that's 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 what i hope to do 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I can tell you that I'm really enjoying it. There's got archaeology, and I mean, you take people all over the country, which is fantastic. And I'm hoping that the people who read it, who have been here, will recognize some of the sites, and who haven't been here yet, will get a yearning to come. Um, the plot, though, you know, they say that sometimes your protagonist, when you write a novel, is you or like pieces of you. So Absolutely. without, so tell us a little bit about the book and if, because I'm afraid to give anything away because it really is like this thriller and I don't want to blow anything. So let's hear it from you because if you give it away, then that's not my problem. That's um, not but is it like, did is that, is it someone you knew? Like, is it, ba- you know, are some of the characters based on people you know? You totally made this up out of whole cloth. How does well, it work? Uh, well, I'll tell you, and I, I think before I answer that question, um, of who the protagonists are and where that's coming from, I would say that um, in defining the book, I would really say that it's a book, it's it's a fictional story that's set within a non-fictional framework. And I use the Dan Brown series, the Robert Langdon, mm-hmm. Code. I use that really as a guide, as he says, claims in his books that the narrative is all fiction, the characters are all fiction, but and 100% of the descriptions of the artwork, of the geography, of the history, it's, that's, all, that's all correct. And basically the same is correct for my book, that 99% of the narrative is, is fiction. And, um, and 99% of the historical geography, Judaism, all, all, 99% of that is, is real stuff. And people are probably going to read the book and they'll be like, nah, come on, that doesn't really exist. I mean, this is crazy stuff. I would, and the fact is that, no, there's a lot of crazy stuff that people can't get to. And, and that's essentially also what I did here is I was able to take people, like you said, we go, the, the protagonists and therefore the readers go all over the country, but they also explore different areas that are inaccessible to the public, mm-hmm. uh, either because they're very challenging to get to or simply that no one has been in these places for decades, centuries, maybe even over a thousand years, because it's just really impossible to get there underground right. caves or closed for all different sorts of, of reasons. So that's as far as like where the book goes. It has two storylines that are obviously interconnected. The first storyline is the minor storyline, and that takes us back to 1,950 years ago to the days of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in the year 70, culminating in the end of the siege of Masada in the year 73. Um, and that's so all that's first century. That's a minor storyline that, that comes up every few chapters and obviously ends towards the end of the book. The major storyline happens in the 21st century, and that's where my, I would say, two main protagonists come into the story. They are twin brothers. Um, They grew up in an ultra-Orthodox world. One of them left that world of religion, of faith, of uh, of study, and became, he he was in the army, he was in an elite unit, and now he's working in um, an organization that, that, that protects and recovers artifacts. Um, and this is all grounded in that organization. It's a fictional organization, but that doesn't mean there isn't a real organization that does that same thing, because there are, because it's a real thing of, of the, I would call it wanton destruction of ancient Jewish right. artifacts in Israel, but it's not wanton, it's purposeful. Right. And it even deals with that. So these protagonists, and you're right, Eve, uh, there, there, there's a bit of me in all those, in those protagonists, because I also came from the world of yeshiva studies. So there's a part of me in Yitzhak. Yitzhak is the is the brother who did not leave the ultra orthodox world. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, this guy's a, a walking genius. He's got a mnemonic mind. He's got right. he, so that's not me. 
Um, it, it, I would say that the the characters are extremified versions of parts of my personality, perhaps. So I also have a background in the military. And so Adir, who's in, in the other 50% of those two main uh, protagonists, I, there are parts of me in him as well. I'm not an elite soldier and... And I'm not, you know, but there are definitely elements of me that appear in in, in both of these characters. And not only that, uh, but there's a lot of tension because these two brothers were inseparable as as youngsters. And and then there's there's a break. And and when they come back together for the story, uh, for the narrative, then there's a tremendous amount of tension and friction and disagreement between the two of them. And really, those conversations are my own personal conversations. They are the struggles that I have uh, between right and left, religious, secular, uh, right and left, politically, uh, historically. Um, when it comes to many of these different issues, they're they're my own struggles. And in many ways, there are the there are these struggles that many Israelis are going through, either on mm-hmm. a personal or communal or societal level. And what's for me also a major part of the book in this part of the educational side is that there's also resolution. The story doesn't end with them never, you know, hanging up the phone on each other and I'm never speaking to you again. Obviously, there's there's acceptance, there's there's resolution. And I really think that in many ways that the hope for Israel as a nation, for Jews as a people, and, and even beyond that, for for humanity, um, um, with all the different conflicts that we have, I think that there are elements of my characters of what they go through and the acceptance that they have towards the end. I think there within lies a tremendous amount of my own personal hope for the future of, of Israel. Well, what comes out very clearly is the respect that they have for each other, even while they're disagreeing. And it's it's their own places that allow them together to solve the mystery. I mean, I'm assuming, because again, I haven't gotten there yet. And I, and I mean, in reading it, and you and I didn't have this discussion before, so I didn't realize that you have a split personality like this and you were playing it out in the book. So that's fascinating to see. I'm teasing, of course. But no, but I think it's, 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 it's a bigger picture here that you've managed to capture. Because one of the things that I, I know is distressing me very much, and I'm sure you as well, is the inability these days for people to really have a conversation. Yes. Um, and I'm seeing it, I see it especially when I go to the United States, um, some of it here, not as bad as, as I see outside of Israel, where there is a complete lack of respect for other people's opinions if they're not different than yours, if they're different than yours. And yes. not just a lack of respect, but even a contempt. And an inability to say, like, we can agree to disagree. We're all working for the same thing. We all feel. And Israel can't, we can't go down that path because we have so many differences of opinion here. And as you just said, even within ourselves, and I'm going to mimic that because I have that conversation with myself all the time. But I can't say between right and left, even though, even with me, and I'm, you know, pretty much secure it, you know, in my opinions on the right, but also things creep in. It's not, it's not simple at all. Um, and it could be that I still have many of the same opinions I had years ago, but for different reasons. And so that's been an important personal uh, development for me. And I see that among a lot of different Israelis. So if you can't have that discussion with other people, how are you going to be able to have it with yourself? How are you going to ever be able to be open to changing your mind and be able to say, you know what, 
I don't see what I saw a few years ago. Things have changed. I've gotten older. I've got a different perspective on things. I've seen my kids grow through, go through things, and that was a big thing for me. Kids in the Army coming home and sharing their experiences most definitely had an effect on me. It's very easy to sit at home and pontificate, but when someone you love is right out there and having to deal with very, very deep and difficult situations, you have to mellow it out. It's not so clear. So I think you that in the book, you do that very, very well. I think personally, you do it pretty well also from how I've known you for many years. Um, now, but I wanted to just touch on the name of the book, because yeah. you call it the 36. So a lot of people know the number 36. 18 is in Hebrew, because Hebrew letters have a numerical, um, each of them has a numerical amount attached to it. So 18 is high, is life. And 36, like if you give charity, very often you'll do it in you know elements of 18, so 18 and 36. But more than that, there's this idea that in every generation, there are 36 righteous people in the world. They're the ones for whom really the world, because of them, the world continues to exist because the rest of us are mucking it up so bad. Badly. Um, is that is that what you're alluding to in the title of the book? So that's an excellent question. Um, the the book is is written actually it has m- multiple layers to it. it, has multiple layers also to the degree that if you read it a second or third time, you'll come away with different understandings or things that you'll miss the first time around. And also because I wrote it in mind that I'd be that my readers would be, um, some of them would have Jewish background, other would not. Some would have religious background, some would not. Some would have background when it comes to Israel's history and geography, and some would not. So people who are becoming with, whatever they're coming with, will understand different, um, uh, will understand it and have different appreciation. I'll say it like this. Everyone will understand it the same, but I think the levels of appreciation will differ. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to the 36, and this is how it answers your question regarding the 36, Yes. So someone like yourself, for sure, right away, you hear 36. The first thing comes to mind is, oh, sure, the Lamed Vavnikim. Maybe people that aren't Jewish know about the Lamed Vavnikim. They're the 30, like you said, the 36 righteous individuals upon, you know, on their merits, the world continues to exist. So you're not wrong in the sense that that is the um, that is the uh, the Jewish concept that that the title comes from. However, if you read the book with a yellow highlighter and every time a different um, form of the 36 comes up, um, you'll end up with altogether 36 different distinct references to what the 36 is. That is just for, for an example, uh, you're on, you're on page 250. I'm not sure what's come up so far. Oh, okay. So Ayeka. Right. Okay. That's already come up. So Ayeka is, is the first word that appears in Genesis, it means it's a very deep Hebrew word. And in English, it somewhat translates as, where are you? Where are you? Which what God says to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Right. He's hiding and God says, you know, you, I'm, I'm, I'm calling to you. Ayeka, where are you? Like and God can't see where he is. Like you yeah, can hide like, from God, right? Yeah. But, right, exactly. And what's that even question about? And and many people who are more involved with the spiritual side of, of Judaism will be like, Right. That's the call of the divine to each human to eat, not just the Adam, but every human, because Adam also means human in in Hebrew. So that's Mm -hmm. the divine call to every human sort of saying, where are you now? It's not a coincidence unless that it is. But but the Jewish concept is that nothing is a coincidence. So it's not a coincidence that the numerical value of that word is 36. 
So there you have already two ah. different references to 36 just from there. And, and, and there are 34 other different distinct references to what the 36 is, what it means. You mentioned gematria, which is the numerical value. Right. I once mentioned this to a Kabbalist and he's like, well, it's not exactly true. It's not that the letters have numerical value. It's that they are numbers, that they, they, they're, they, an Aleph is not only equal to one, it is one. Mm -hmm. It was a very deep conversation, but in yes. essentially you'll, again, there are 36 different references to the 36, but you're not wrong in thinking that there is, um, that the, that the idea came from uh, this Talmudic idea of the 36 righteous individuals. And, um, and, and as you continue reading, you'll see that there is a very deep connection. What I did here with the, with the early historical chapters, with the chapters of the first century, is that essentially provides the foundation for who the 36 are. And of course, it also provides the foundation for how and why is that relevant in the 21st century. And that's a lot of what you and I also do. Not only yes. do we talk history, but the question that I've seen you do it a dozen times, all the time, that we, you and I, we both try to, okay, this is the historical piece. How and why is it relevant for my audience now and today in their lives, wherever they are? Mm -hmm. How do you create that relevancy? Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's, what the, that's what this book does. Yeah. I mean, if I had to actually sum up how I try and educate in one sentence, that would be exactly it. That the things repeat themselves. So whatever we're learning, if it's the Torah, if it's secular history, whatever it is about a war or something that happened, how is it relevant for today? What lessons can we learn from it so maybe we don't make the same mistakes? But really, more than that, there's, there seems to be some kind of pattern in history. And uh, I don't think there's anything that's happened that we can't learn from, which is why it's so painful, just as an aside, where so many people don't know history anymore. Um, it's, they think it's just not important. No, oh, that was the past, and it's not important, but it, it absolutely is. And maybe it's because as Jews and as Jews who are privileged to live in the land of Israel, we're surrounded by history yes. all the time. I mean, it's impossible to take a step anywhere without seeing where we were, but also where we're going. Yeah. Um, so when you wrote the book though, did you have that in mind or did you just kind of develop as, as the book came about? It was like, you sat down and you said, okay, I'm going to take this word and I'm going to make sure it appears in the book 36 times. How's that work? Um, definitely, definitely option A. Um, when I sat down with writing the book and I had an idea that maybe the 36 as an organization, I would be able to weave it in. And I did. Um, but there was no, I had no clue um, um, that it would end up being 36 different references. I think I must have gotten about to about 30 and, and without realizing, I was like, wait a minute, this is just like, this is insane. How many references do I already have? And I started counting. I was like, one, two, three, four. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, oh, it's, there's gotta be, there's gotta be at least another six. And, right. and, uh, and oh, so that's great. there's some that, that wrote themselves. Like I, I have a friend, a very good friend. She's a published author as well. And, um, and I'd be speaking with her. I'd be like, you won't believe what my characters did yesterday. Like, I didn't know they could do that. Like, you know, I didn't know he spoke French. I mean, they don't speak French, but like, right. you know, like, I didn't know that she's like, I know. It's like the characters, they come alive in your head. And then suddenly they, they do something and they say something. And, 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 and so I'm like, I, I, I didn't know they could do that. Even and, though and, you're making them up. Yes. And wow. that's what I need to say. People say, did you write the book? I said, yes, I wrote the book, but and I, and I don't know if it's like false humidity 
But I think that people who, who have experienced this know exactly what I'm talking about. That it's like, well, I did hold the pen to the paper, but the book wrote itself wow. in many ways. I mean, I got the ball rolling, but but at some points it just like it just started writing itself. And mm. all these different opportunities presented themselves and and things opened up. And I was like, wow, this is incredible, incredible stuff. Um, you know, because so it was really you, a fascinating process. Yeah, I mean, I'm listening to you because I people are bugging me to write a book, but um, just a couple days ago, somebody brought it up again. It's something that I'll probably have to do at some point. So I'm actually curious as to how the process goes. So when because in the chapters where you're talking about the year 70 and Masada, you know what happened. Like you yeah. can put some words into somebody's mouth that they didn't necessarily say, whatever it is, you can use it as a literary device, but you know the character, you know what happens to him, you know what happens at Masada, this is not, you know, spoiler alert, um, but when the, the modern story that you're going through is really yours to, to bring to some kind of culmination. You have the yes. freedom there that you don't have when you're discussing historical events. Well, it, yes and no, because... Um the the historical narrative there you uh, you some of it you've already read and some that you'll you have yet to get to is that i did some historical revisionism in those in that minor storyline and what happens in the first century now no one can come to me and say josh this is this is baloney and didn't happen that way because the all that we have is we have a few historical records like right. josephus and others and i'm not saying that it's worth nothing it's worth a lot however there are elements that I introduced that answer some of the biggest questions that have never fully been answered or that the answers that have been provided are not fully complete. The -hmm. questions are still looming and big. For instance, why exactly did the Romans burn the temple? That's not what they were. That wasn't their usual standard modus operandi. They they looted, they they subdued, but the, the destruction not so there's something in there that i insert that's historical revisionism mm-hmm. why exactly did the romans send 15,000 soldiers to surround the last glowing ember of masada a lot right. of people think about that so okay there are something uh, i had to do with political turmoil in rome they needed to complete the campaign it would have been really enough to leave a cohort a hundred soldiers at the base of masada Nobody had email. The reception of the on the G4 was horrible. No one would have known. No one would have known. There's no yeah, water half the year at yeah, some yeah. point. Yeah. Why did they send 15,000 soldiers? So what I do is I add an element there that essentially, and again, it's, that it is my imagination, but it's imagination that's firmly rooted in what we do know about the historical geography, about the, about the times. So that actually I had to work within a framework mm-hmm. as opposed to the modern where I had much freer reign to to come up with whatever I wanted to, as far as like where the characters are going and what are they right. going to be doing and things like that. But it was it was different. You know, what I think I did in the end. I didn't realize this in the beginning. Like I said, there's some things I only realize in retrospect. I think I chose the most difficult path because people who write fiction, they need a tremendous amount of imagination, but they don't need research. And people who write nonfiction need to do a tremendous amount of research, but they don't need a tremendous amount of imagination. What I did is I did both. (laughs) (laughs) With those two parts of your personality. I guess so, but I didn't realize that. So like years, I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done to myself? (laughs) But but the product is, I think is, is, it shows it and it's worthwhile. I'm just thinking because there's two parts of your personality that are mimicked in the two brothers. So one of them is 
I mean, he's not just a yeshiva guy, but he's very much into Kabbalah. So I wonder, yes. you know, like the more esoteric, the more spiritual elements of Judaism that have been hidden for many of us for a long time and, and that they say only certain people can really understand. Maybe that's the actually imaginative part and the so-called secular world of facts, which is where one of the brothers goes, right, yes. is the unimaginative part. I don't know. It's, uh, you know, we tend to think of religion as the unmovable. And then when you're, if you're not religious, then you have the freedom to be a free thinker. But maybe it's actually the opposite um, yeah. in the crazy place that you and I actually both find ourselves in uh, right. very often, very often. So, um, and that's wow, one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons also that the book, I, I got a, um, um, there was, I have a, a former client who's become very, a very dear friend of mine. He's an Irish pastor and he read the book and he, and he wrote to me and he was blown away. He was fascinated. And he says, Josh, you know, you're such an educator and I learned so much. Um, and he's been to Israel. He comes to Israel uh, pre-corona, like once, twice, three times a year. Wow. And um, he learned so much and so much of, of the Jewish insights are just interwoven in such a readable and attainable way throughout the book. And, and when I heard that, I was like, nice. I succeeded because nice. I wasn't writing only for a Jewish audience because so many of my non-Jewish clients are yearning to understand more about Judaism. And what's most, I think what speaks most to people, and you said it, it are the, is the spiritual side of mm-hmm. faith. Yes. And, and one of the things that I've noticed, and you also hear this in different lectures, some of them are Kabbalist and maybe some of them are, are not, but spirituality is not unique to one faith. Ritual is. Right. Ritual is specific to one specific faith and not another. But the spiritual elements behind those rituals, it, it, we, I mean, we also believe it all stems from one source. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, so, and so therefore, it's maybe not even surprising. Uh, the opposite would be surprising. And yet so, so many people are surprised. And I think if someone is a, a Protestant or a Catholic or, or practicing some other faith and they read some of the spiritual elements that come up, I would call it Kabbalistic intrigue because that's what it is. It's Kabbalistic cool. intrigue. I think that they see in this, they're like, oh my gosh, like that explains to me as a practicing and then fill in the blank, whoever they may be, mm-hmm. so much about my own faith because mm-hmm. that's what spirituality is. It, right. it crosses the religious boundaries and borders. Right. And so many of, I know my listeners, there's a creator. Even if we belong to different religions, there is some something out there that's bigger than we are. And the truth is that the Ayeka, in what you said before, is when God is looking for man. But the question that I grapple with is looking for God, right? Many yeah. of us, especially in the hardest times of our life, are crying out, Ayeka, like God, where are you? right? Because I need you and I need you now. Um, so it's actually some kind of a conversation. It's that mutual search um, that will take our whole lives and uh, can add really tremendous meaning again, no matter what religion you belong to, is that yes. th- those feelings of faith. And this is the place where so much of it happens and continues to happen and that you can't live in if you don't have faith because this place is nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Really, in the best way possible. Really is in the absolute best way possible. But every minute here is a total miracle, and right. uh, and we totally feel it. And I just hope that the people listening, first of all, need to get back here as soon as they can, and and that the world will open up. But in the meantime, read your book, The Thirty Six. Where can they get it? Is it available? Um, it is available. The people that are living in Israel or wish to have it delivered in Israel can contact me directly. 
and people living outside of Israel can order it on Amazon.com. And my name, Evan Chen, is spelled E-V-E-N hyphen C-H-E-N. And many readers will think, oh, that's so interesting. A man who has an Asian family name wrote a book <laughs> exactly. about. So it's not even Chen, no. although I wouldn't mind. It is Evan Chen. And, Which means uh, a and beautiful stone. Yes, it does. Is that, that, is that your... Oh, that can't be your original family. No, no. I was born Goldstein, and Goldstein is a gold stone, which is a gemstone, which is in Hebrew, and Evan Chen. It's and really a beautiful name. Yeah. Thank you. Thank definitely, you. definitely a beautiful name. Okay. Josh, Evan Chen, thank you so much for spending your time wisely this last year, and um, looking forward to seeing you, like bumping into you on Masada or wherever. Um, where we can discuss these things. But in the meantime, I, I'll let you know when I finish the book what I thought, because you know that that's what I'll do. And, um, but it's great. And, uh, and until people do get back here, Eve, and two people, uh, d- until they do get back here. So I have another guy in New York who read it, who's a former client. And he said, Josh, reading the book was just like being on tour with you again in Amazing. Israel. So you know, let that so, not be a replacement, but it definitely enhances it. It's so funny how for many of us, and I hate using the word tour guides because it sounds like Universal Studios and over there is where they filmed whatever. And it's not. Yes. It's educators yes. on the road and, yes. and our classroom is the land. Um, it's so funny. I see it for myself how many people that I've guided become friends. Because it's like we have this almost intimate shared experience and it doesn't matter how many times I've gone to a certain place. It's always different depending on who I'm with and how they're experiencing it. Totally enhances my life, something I'm missing tremendously, as I know you are as well. So, yes. um, so it's nice to hear you talk about, you know, the people that you've guided also and that they're still connected with you because it's the same thing. It doesn't yeah. go away. All right. Sure. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network, with Josh Evanchen, uh, educator and now author. So he can add that to his already illustrious CV. I'd like to thank Tabitha and Ben, and, uh, and wish all of you, wherever you are, um, health and a great week. And uh, hopefully I will be back. So take care, everybody, and goodbye for now. What is the purpose of this groups being here? We intend to go back home. The land is waiting for us for 2,000 years. It's about time to settle. Do you have permission from the government to settle? Permission from the government? I don't think that a Jew needs permission from anyone. Tune in to The Jewish Story with Rav Mike Foyer, now in the 1970s. Whatever else Zionism may be, it is not and cannot be a form of racism. Learn all about the rise of international terrorism, the birth of the settlement movement, and the story of the Jewish people and Israel. Israeli commandos armed and ready for combat. In 36 minutes, they killed seven hijackers, helped the hostages to the waiting planes, and took off again for the long flight back to Israel. That's The Jewish Story with Rav Mike Foyer on the Land of Israel Network at the Land of Israel dot com.